You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 126, Hallelujah. Today's proverb comes from Dostoevsky. I'll read it twice. Beauty will save the world. Once more. Beauty will save the world. People love this quote. Classical educators love this quote. If you go to a classical educator's conference, you're going to hear people quote this line from Dostoevsky's The Idiot. Classical educators love it. There are great lectures devoted to explaining this saying. There are awful lectures devoted to explaining this saying. There's no telling which way someone is going to go when they bring this proverb up in the first five minutes of a lecture. If I was the headmaster at a school and I was handing out applications for people who wanted to teach, I don't think I'd ask for a philosophy of education. I'd just ask for teachers to explain this. What do you think it means? Beauty will save the world. You think it's true? If so, why? I think it's a better question. It's more revealing than asking someone for their philosophy of education. Everyone's got a different take on this. It's a little bit like Ecclesiastes. Everyone's got their own take on this one. There's no right answer on this one. There's no single explanation of this idea. There's many. Many good ones. I've heard that in first century Palestine, a common person asked a rabbi, what is the greatest commandment? To give the rabbi the opportunity of showing off their chops, showing how well they knew the law. And that it was somewhat common for a rabbi to choose a fairly obscure commandment. Perhaps something about not wearing clothing spun of two fibers or something like that. And the rabbi would then explain why that was the greatest commandment. And the idea was not so much that you would actually pick the greatest commandment, but that you would show the perfect unity of the law, the perfect harmony of the law. The law is so perfect or the God who gives the law is so perfectly singular, so unified, that any single aspect of the law, no matter how trivial, will take you to the heart of the law. And so when a rabbi was asked, what's the greatest commandment, it was expected that they would give like this little five-minute explanation of it. Beauty will save the world is not a proverb that stands on its own, which means it's almost not a proverb. Almost not a proverb. 
I think a proverb ought to be the sort of thing you can say to someone in a particular circumstance and for it to be clearly indicative of the necessary course of action. Or a proverb ought to be clearly prohibitive of some something that someone was considering doing. As a proverb, if we're going to take it as a proverb, beauty will save the world is a cousin of you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. You can't force a horse to save itself. You can lead a horse to water, but if a horse wants to perish of thirst in sight of water, it can. A thirsty horse could even drown in water. You can't force a man to save himself. You can't force a man to make his life better. If a man wants to be miserable, it doesn't matter how pleasant you make his life. A better life, a good life, is something that emerges from the soul. And the good life can emerge from any condition whatsoever. A lucky condition, an unlucky condition. The good life is not dependent on material things. The good life does not depend on the effects of fortune. And this is because the good life is a life of gratitude and thankfulness and virtue. And you can't force a man to be virtuous. You also can't like, compel a man to be virtuous. You can't like drop virtue in a man's lap the way that you can drop a pile of cash in a man's lap. A virtuous man is always worthy of virtue. Having virtue is what makes you worthy of virtue. It's not like power, right? Having power doesn't make you worthy of power. There are plenty of people who have power who do not deserve it. There are plenty of people who have great fortunes and do not deserve it. There are plenty of people who have popularity and do not deserve it. And it's easy to look at someone who has all the pleasant effects of fortune and to say, ah, she doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve it. Virtue's not this way, though. Right? Having courage is what makes a man worthy of having courage. Having wisdom is what makes a man worthy of having wisdom. Virtue justifies its own possession in a way that good fortune doesn't. Having money does not justify having money. Having power does not justify having power. But you would never say of a man who was charging across a battlefield at the enemy, oh, that man isn't worthy of courage. You would never say that. And if someone had wisdom and said something wise, if someone gave you great advice in a crucial moment, you would never say, you don't deserve to give me good advice. 
if a coward or someone you thought was a coward is charging across a battlefield, you don't say that guy doesn't deserve to charge across a battlefield. You say, oh, didn't think he had it in him. Glad that he does. You're always glad to see people you thought had no virtue have it because virtue is self-justifying. It justifies its own possession. Beauty will save the world because beauty is what makes the horse want to drink. On top of that, beauty is what makes the horse want to drink the good stuff and only God is good. Beauty is capable of compelling without persuading. Beauty is capable of moving us without terrorizing us, without threats. Beauty is also a kind of strange, self-justifying authority, almost in the same way that the possession of virtue is self-justifying. Beauty is a kind of self-justifying authority. Beauty inspires a curious and very creative sort of obedience. And I think that you could also say that beauty inspires love if we understand love to mean, like Dante, if we understand that love means movement towards something, and that hatred is movement away from something. You may have read my article on beauty for Circe. It's probably five or six years old now. When I was writing that article, I think that was back in 2018. When I was writing that article, I proposed something about human beauty. And it was in the course of authoring that article that I had this thought on human beauty that has really kind of stuck with me ever since and has become the thing I think of when I think of beauty's power and beauty's danger at the same time. And it's the image, maybe it's more of a story. It's an image attached to a story or a story attached to an image. It's an image of three boys around the ages of 11, 12, 13, 14, who live in a small village and who hear that a beautiful princess will be passing through a nearby town and so they walk six miles on foot to stand near a procession or near where a procession will be and wait for hours for a beautiful princess to pass. And they only catch a glimpse of her face for a moment and then they walk home in a kind of sober, happy silence. None of them is speaking because they're not entirely sure what they saw. What does it mean that they saw a beautiful princess? What is beauty? Having seen a beautiful princess, is anything now incumbent on them to do or not do? When they recall this beautiful princess, will they behave differently? Now that they've seen her, 
Will her memory inspire them to live differently? Perhaps they know that something has changed, but they can't entirely say what it is. And so they walk in silence, trying to figure out what is different, what's new. There's something risky and something dangerous and something ineffable about beauty. The riskiness of beauty is in its unearned, unqualified aspect of power. A power that can compel us to change. Beauty will save the world. Beauty will make the world want to walk six miles to catch a glimpse of a beautiful princess who will invite the world to a banquet. There's really only two powers that are sufficient to change a man's life in a single moment, and those are beauty and tragedy. Both beauty and tragedy lift our thoughts out of this world and into the heavenly realm. Tragedy turns our minds to the life to come. Our fathers die and we piously tire of this world. A tsunami kills a hundred thousand people in a matter of minutes and we despair of ever making sense of this world. And yet beauty doesn't make sense either. Beauty is always gratuitous. It's always unnecessary. Doesn't keep hearts beating, doesn't keep bellies full. Beauty doesn't make life possible. It makes life good. The gratuity and the surplus of beauty is necessarily then spiritual in nature. Beauty cannot be physically possessed. It can only be spiritually possessed, but spiritual possession is sacrament. Spiritual possession blurs the lines of autonomy. Spiritual possession is not having. Spiritual possession is being. In this way, beauty cannot be had. It must be. When I was 20, I saw a movie that changed my life. I want to say a lot about the movie. I actually want to say something about the life-changingness of the movie. I suspect some listeners will be able to figure out what the movie is. I actually would prefer not to give the title. When I was 20, I saw a movie that changed my life. About the time I was 17, I started listening to a lot of techno. Judge me, please. I started listening to a lot of techno when I was 17. It was the 90s. This is back when there were a thousand articles in Rolling Stone entitled, Is Techno the Next Big Thing? I thought so. You remember the 90s? You remember techno? You remember 
Prodigy, the Chemical Brothers. I was into all that stuff. I was also into trance music, which if you're, if you're not big into music, you don't know what the difference between techno and trance is. So for the four listeners of this show that do know the difference, I was big into trance music. And there was, at the time, this very popular trance label called Global Underground. You can look it up. Global Underground was compilations of songs mixed by these globetrotting DJs like Nick Warren, Sasha Alexander, Paul Oakenfold. And each of these releases were two discs. They were all imported and they were all insanely expensive. Like between $29 and $35 a piece. And as soon as I discovered these late in high school, I just fell in love with them. And I began slowly buying them up. I remember, if you've read How to Be Unlucky, this is before the whole Hastings game <laughs> became apparent to me. This is before credit, the credit I needed to buy CDs became cheap. This is back when every dollar had to be earned. This is back when I worked in a telemarketing firm, making phone calls to strangers, asking them to take surveys. Was this soul-crushing job I had, whereby I made $9 an hour and slowly assembled the money for a paycheck that would be summarily blown at Hastings on techno music. I think by the time I was 20, I had probably t between 25 and 30 global underground CDs. We're talking like six, seven, eight hundred dollars I had spent collecting these things. And for, a, you know, a certain passage of my life, this was like one of the only styles of music I listened to. I had a diverse CD collection, but this was like the only thing that I was really stuck on for a couple years. And if you want to look up this music, you can. I mean, I don't mind saying now... It was pretty soulless. It was it was pretty inhuman. It's it's music made by robots and and by know, algorithms and sequences and assembled by computers. I mean, there's um like the average DJ releasing a CD on the Global Underground series could not play a single instrument. Probably couldn't even play the cymbals. Like these were. Fairly talentless people. But I was fascinated by this music. And it all sounds the same. I mean, you know, from from the distance of 20 years, it all sounds the same. It's all you know, 100 beats a minute, synthesizers, some sample, uh, some stray line of dialogue from a sci-fi movie repeated over and over again. So I was 20... Fast forward a few years. I'm 20. This is still the main kind of music I listen to. I've moved out of the house. I live on my own. And it's even harder to come by cash to spend on CDs because I have to make rent and buy my own food. 
go see a movie. The year is 2001. I go see a movie with some friends. And around 14 hours after I saw this movie, I sold every Global Underground CD I had. I got rid of it all. I walked into that film with a taste for a certain kind of music and walked out with a different kind of taste. I walked out of that film and said, I don't want to listen to music made by robots anymore. I sold, I don't know, it was so much, probably $1,000 worth of CDs. I traded it in for $100 of credit, like almost nothing. And I want to tell you every CD I bought with that tiny fraction of, uh, of credit from the many, many hundreds, maybe, maybe thousands of dollars I spent on these CDs. But one of those CDs was Jeff Buckley's Grace. I wanted something human to listen to. And there was, there was nothing that happened in this film that was an argument against techno music. There was no argument against trance music. It was just that the aesthetic of the film and the beauty of the film reached through my eyes and ears and turned my heart upside down. And I wanted my life to be more like this film. And I realized that the music I was listening to made my life very unlike this film. In buying new music, in buying music that was more harmonious with the aesthetic of this film, I could not hope to please the film. There was no body to impress. It was an entirely internalized change. I wasn't buying new music in order to get access to some better, more pleasant way of life. There was no material function for it. And because of this, there was no argument that could have persuaded me to get rid of all of my trance CDs. Before I saw that film, it's impossible to imagine me sitting down and having a conversation with someone who said, this music sucks. You shouldn't listen to it anymore. I can't imagine buying that. There was nothing rational that could get me to part with all of those CDs. But beauty is capable of changing our desires. Beauty can save the world because beauty can make the world want to be saved.